Also, I thought I would do this since I'm already grounded because my parents' biggest rule is like, I'm not allowed to have any um, public social media accounts. Here's why. <laughs> it's because they, they don't want me to be a nepotism kid. But TikTok's not going to make me famous, so it doesn't really matter. Wait, is this an onion? Because I feel like this doesn't look like an onion. This looks like the inner working. So. And this, yes, we're on. And this is Ari, um, my babysitter's boyfriend, because my parents are never home, so these are my replacement parents. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I am the other co-host, Brian Connolly. All right, so uh, we took a brief break last episode <laughs> to go back to Shyamalan, talk about what he was up to in the woods with Batista, and now we are back to Coppola in this weird, like, limbo state of his career. Yeah. Where he didn't make a movie between Rainmaker in 97 and Youth Without Youth in 2007. But in the year 2000, he did have a hand in two, not one, but two movies where he acted as a uh, like, fixer, <laughs> editor for hire. Uh, I picture him like Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction. They're like, hey, Coppola, we need, we need to fix this thing. Yeah. We, need to ha- we need help. And him just be like, I know what I'm doing. I'm the expert. Yeah. Coming on in. Trying to salvage <laughs> salvage two troubled movies. Uh, one being uh, The Fantastics, an adaptation of the uh, well-known and well-loved stage musical. And the other, the sci-fi action sort of horror movie, Supernova. But before we get into that, we have a few, the minutes, I guess you'd say. Yeah, we have some, we have some old... <laughs> Old, old news, old, news, old news, business. But you know, we haven't done Coppola in a while. But let's start with this delicious wine that we're having because we're now back into a Coppola wine. I don't know if we've had this, and the two people that have listened to our show can go back and tell us maybe we're wrong. Yeah, so this but, is the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Red Blend 2018. So vintage, right? This is yeah. five years old. It's as old as my kids. Pre COVID. Yeah. All right, let's see. Our Diamond Red Blend has a velvety texture and fragrant notes of violets, spices, and uh, toasted oak layered with rich, luscious flavors of blueberries, cherries, plum. Pairs beautifully with grilled meats and aged cheeses. Nice. (laughs) I think most things pair well with aged cheeses. Just because I like cheese. My mouth pairs well with it. Jesus, yeah. I'll eat it alone. This is good. This is a good wine. And, and we're lucky we're not into the uh, you know dog days of summer yet here in Texas. So it's not too hot for a good red wine. Yeah, it's still uh, uh, it's late spring here at the start of May. Uh, which means that it's like you know midsummer. <laughs> like midsummer for most places. Yeah. It's like 85, but you know, pleasant, but overcasty. But, okay, so the continuing minutes. First up, dealing with something from last episode where Knock at the Cabin had two DPs and we wondered how that played out. And my wife, uh, you know, did her research and sent me a link. Uh, And here's a quote from Shyamalan in an interview. How did you end up with two DPs, Shyamalan? It was a schedule thing. Jaren ended up doing all the interiors, not every single interior, but almost all of them. Then Lowell did the exteriors. So there was an organic place in the schedule where we could make that happen. I was very lucky to have both of them. I love both of them. They're good human beings, really, both of them. Interesting. So 
Well, I gotta say, I preferred the exterior shots than the interior shots. So uh, the interior is a harder challenge. So that's more yeah. work, I feel. It was like a two-room movie. Well, let's talk about Coppola's uh, movie that he's working on, Megalopolis. Megalopolis. Which we've mentioned. Mega, Megalopolis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then classic Coppola form already bogged down with uh, you know controversy and a, a supposed production gone out of hand is according to some of the actors on set yeah though according to adam driver everything was going fine however uh something that my wife pointed out is that in all because she's been here for all this coppola ness (laughs) is that coppola seems like the kind of director where even if the production was horrible like he would make sure his actors were okay (laughs) like they were comfortable like aside from martin sheen Having a nervous breakdown and then a heart attack on Apocalypse Now. <laughs> except for that. Yeah, except for that. Like, you know, was going to, like, make sure they were they were comfortable there's, so they could do their acting jobs. You know? There was a report I read that it was the, the special effects crew that he was having problems mm. with, or the special effects department, and someone described it as chaotic. And what I got to say to that is, well... You should have watched Hearts of Darkness, fools, before you agreed yeah. to be in a couple of... He lives on chaos. That's what he loves. Like, this isn't the first, second, or third time he's had a production that's gone a little crazy. There just happens to be one that actually had a documentary about it. But, like, you, yeah. we, we, what we've learned on this show is that he always kind of... I mean, he's very driven to get his vision 100%, no matter what. Which means he's, yeah, he's a bit of a perfect... He is a perfectionist. Not to mean that that's cool, to be mean to people, or who knows what happened. My guess is that it was just his demands weren't being met, or his demands were maybe more work than what was expected. We can only hypothesize until any actual legit news comes out. But uh, I'm excited to see, and you said you heard that they maybe finished rapping, because what I heard was that it got shut down because they lost every member of the special effects department quit. But, I mean, you can just hire more people. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe bring, not the bring Roman here. back. Bring Roman back. Do some shadow play. You know, or, you know. Who? It'll be interesting to see with that if he, because it's been, he hasn't directed a movie in a long time. He hasn't directed a big special effects movie since Dracula. And so is it going to be, is it practical effects? Is he embracing lots of CGI? Is he going the... The route of his pal George and his all green screen, but with, but still, you know, making everyone work 110. percent I don't know. I'm very excited. As long I am as too. He finishes it within his lifetime. I'll be. I happy. am too because I think because of the amount of control he's able to have because he funded this with all his wine money. Oh right, we're using the decanter. <laughs> okay. All right, we're trying to be classy and use. I'm decanter. drinking wine of a decanter. AJ, I've, I've been I've been reaching over the decanter to grab the bottle, bottle of wine. It tastes good either way. Yeah, mine will have breathed more. Yeah, I'll just pour it all in the decanter. Yeah. There we go. This is, uh. this is <laughs> those at home. Uh, if you if you have a de, don't if you don't have a decanter, get it. It's great. If you don't know what it is, it's like in, when you go to a, like a Italian restaurant and they bring over this like big kind of glass thing. That's a decanter, and it's to help get more surface of the wine touch air to have it all breathe more to kind of pull that flavor out and open it up. So It really helps because wine is still, like, you know, technically a living thing, so it, <laughs> yeah. cha- it changes depending on whatever. That's why the vintages 
matter and the age matters and all that. And what I've heard from many people is that Coppola reds in particular, you really want to decant and you really want to make it breathe just because it's, it's so, you know, bold and you want to really yeah. get it out there. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, I'm, uh, I, I'm ready for Megalopolis to be at the very least interesting. I, this is, there's no way this is going to be a bland, oh, anybody could have directed Jack... And this yeah. is going to be like only Coppola could do this, good or bad. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen a Coppola movie brand new in the theater. Um, no, I haven't either. This will be the first. Like I, yeah. like not counting director's cuts of things. Like I saw Apocalypse Now Redux the opening weekend, but that doesn't count. I don't think so. And I've seen very few Coppola movies in general in the theater. I did Godfather one and two. The Conversation, I believe, I see in the theater, and Apocalypse Now, and that's it. So, I'm excited to, to, to see a new one. I hope it's like IMAX. I hope it's like D-Box. I hope it's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final minutes, uh, again, because we took a lot of breaks, so this is a few months old for those that, you know, for those youngins listening to this uh, that are on TikTok, uh, Sophia Coppola's daughter made a video that went viral that many people uh, mocked, talked about. Um, do you want to describe this yeah, video? So, uh, so Romy Mars uh, got in trouble because she tried to use her dad's credit card, uh, her dad being the guy from Phoenix, uh, tried to use his credit card to rent a helicopter to go... Like, see a friend. And this is like a 13, 14 year old? She, yeah. 15? She's, she's teenager. Yes. Yeah. She's younger teens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she was grounded, and <laughs> then she's also not allowed on social media. So she created a TikTok account and made this, you know, minute long TikTok video of her making uh, pasta. <laughs> Well, complaining that she's grounded, she explains the situation of like, I just tried to use my dad's credit card to rent a helicopter to go with my friends. Oh, now I'm grounded. And then she's making a pasta and incorrectly uh, calls a shallot an onion, which like I'm sure like if Francis saw this, it's, something died inside him. But his <laughs> granddaughter doesn't know the difference between an onion and a shallot when making a pasta. And then complains that she's being watched by her, that her parents are never home. That they're not there currently. That they're never around. And, and she's being watched by her babysitter's, babysitter's boyfriend. boyfriend. <laughs> and there's just some guy in a beard in the corners, like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, this is the best sequel to Life Without Zoe. It really is. It is. You know, I know there's a lot of you know anti this nepo baby thing going on, but I feel like just as I felt with Sophia. Fuck you! This is a great filmmaker in the making here. This is an amazing. That was an amazing minute and a half. That that it TikTok. really is. It's really great, and there's so much there. And it really is like when I first saw it, I was like, "My God, this is the New York Story's story." Like that is a short film that Sofia Coppola yeah. would have written. Her parents aren't there. She's there with this guy who's <laughs> taking after her with Don Novello, <laughs> with the butler. And just her, like, trying to... But in the short, she would have rented the helicopter and would have gone on some adventure and would have made some pasta with her friends. And this also could be the beginning of a Sofia Coppola movie. This is, like, basically she's living a moment from Lost in Translation or Marie Antoinette or Bling Ring or somewhere, whatever. Like, this is... 
I, I'm very. I hope that she also becomes a filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> no, she is it. already one. She made a short film that was the most compelling short film I've seen in the last year. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, she has since. Uh, she has since closed or been forced to close her TikTok account, but that video is still uh, circling around out there. It's literally a minute long because that's how TikTok works. Uh, so, so check it out. And if uh, I think, I think maybe it was John Oliver had a joke where he said, like after seeing that, he was talking about another TikTok video. But he said, "I thought I knew what TikTok was, but after seeing that, I realized I don't know what TikTok is." <laughs> and that's my reaction to seeing anything on TikTok. I think I know what it is, and then I see it, and then I, I realize I don't know what TikTok is. Well, I. I, I loved it. I feel that's maybe the only TikTok video I've ever seen because I'm old and I have no business being on TikTok or any social media for that matter. I, I believe I'm successfully off all social media now. Hey, I've, good, pe- good. I have friends trying to pressure me into doing Letterboxd and I'm distrustful of it. I don't, I don't need it in my life. Uh, but, but yeah, check that video out. Very, very good. <laughs> Abductions, abductions, theatrical abductions, complete with maidens in distress and fabulous productions. The sort of thing you see upon the operatic stage. All right. All right. Well, let's get into these two movies. And I guess let's set up what these two movies are before we go into them. All right. Uh, I, I, I did a little bit of research. There's actually not a lot written about sort of what happened here. And your Coppola book sadly stops bef- right before this happened. I think your book stops in 98. Yep, that is and correct. And this is 2000, or maybe this was happening in 99, and these movies came out in 2000. But basically, Coppola is, was on the board at MGM, right? And for whatever reason, I guess it was his idea, to probably because he still owed money or just wanted something quick. Quick and was like, I will fix some movies for you, MGM. All it costs is you pay me a million dollars and I will fix a movie for you. And he started with, well, we don't know which one he actually started with first, but we just know which order. The Supernova Nova came out first, and then a few months later, The Fantastics. But basically, these were two movies that were in sort of a post production hell. Um, and we can go into details of each movie when we talk about it. And he was just, he kind of came in as fixer-upper. Like he, and, and with the Fantastics, he is just credited as sort of Zoetrope re-editing and fixing it. And then with Supernova, a little he did a little more. He's actually uncredited as director on IMDb for Supernova, along with two other directors. And with that one, he actually changed some of the scenes and re-edited that one as well, which is very weird. And in a way, very much where he started in his career, because it reminds me of that terrible, what was that movie called? The first episode we did? Battle Beyond. Battle Beyond the Sun sun or something? Battle Beyond the Sun. I think so. Where that was like a Russian sort of movie that he then shot, or Jack Hill helped, and they shot some new footage, and they re-edited the thing. And then there was also the... Bell Boy and the Playgirls, which was another movie that existed, and then he added stuff. So this is sort of him. Maybe this was his uh, revisiting his youth, and he was like, "Ah, remember when I worked for Roger Corman back in the '60s, and I took those crappy movies, and I just kind of 
added some shit and re-edited. I, I can do that. But now he's charging way more than... Charging as much as Roger Corman would have used for 30 movies, at least. Uh, and it just, you know, my wife pointed out that it just kind of all feels like a big scam. <laughs> he just sort of like knew that these movies weren't going to amount to anything and he kept his name off of it and he can just get paid to keep some people working at Zoetrope in the editing suite while he was thinking about what he was doing next or making wine or whatever. Uh, isn't that kind of your, what you feel? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, really before this, he had already settled into where he's going to be in our next episode of I have this vineyard, I make my wine, oh, I want to make an addition to my vineyard, I'll do a movie. Or I'm traveling, I read this book. Oh, okay. I'll do. Is, has this has this been optioned yet? No. Okay. I'll do. I'll do the rainmaker. I'll do the rainmaker. Like just what he wants to do, but mainly he's focused now on the vineyard. And yeah, like just get get a couple mil, kind of you know, uh, kind of try to fix a movie and then put it back into your vineyard. Sure. And it's also worth noting that this is a year after Sofia Coppola pr- premiered her first movie, The Virgin Suicide, which came out in 1999. So his daughter is like more than just an up-and-coming filmmaker, but like a much heralded, celebrated, like people loved that movie. And there's like, oh, this is a new voice. This is very exciting. And so I think he was fine kind of taking a back seat while his daughter was making these great films for with within... 97 to 2007, she made a few really great movies and won an Oscar. So, like, she was doing pretty good. And so him just coming in as a... Who knows if he actually edited this? My guess is he had, like, a bunch of people at Zoetrope, some interns maybe or whatever, help out. Uh, But we'll... uh, It'll be interesting because we're not... we, We will definitely talk about what these movies are about, but he didn't really direct this. But he did no reshoots. He did no, no reshoots. reshoots. This is all post-production manipulation, um, which is a, a more dastardly way of saying re-edited, I guess. <laughs> but let's start with the easier of the two, uh, in our opinion, the Fantastics. So, in both these movies, are really interesting in different ways. I feel like it's uh, you can pick two very different movies to work on, and who knows why Coppola picked these two movies. Because, there, like I said, there's not really a lot written about beyond, like, hearsay and little notes on IMDb trivia. But The Fantastics, uh, directed by Michael Ritchie, who is was a really good filmmaker. Like, he made some really good movies. Like, you might remember him from uh, doing uh, The Bad News Bears, which is a great film. You have The Candidate, which is much loved, Prime Cut, Downhill Racer, which is really beloved, like Criterion put that out, um, Semi-Tough, he directed Fletch, the first Fletch movie, The Golden Child, The Couch Trip, and, and a bunch of uh, stuff. And this is, according to IMDb, his last movie, though technically it wasn't the last movie he made, it's just the last movie that got released with his name on it. Because this movie, I believe, was shot in, what, 95? And so he directed other movies after that. So it was shot in 95 based on a, re- a musical I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of it but either. But when, re- when you look it up, it's like the longest-running musical in history in terms of like constantly playing in New York. And I guess it's a big go-to 
for high schools would yeah. totally make sense. Like every high school in America loves to put on the Fantastics. I believe it's because it's very simple. It's a very easy small plot, which I'll say in a second. And the music is not too complicated. And I feel like it's just like there's only like really like six speaking roles in the whole thing. And so I feel like that it's just it was a thing that came out in the 60s. And it just feels sort of like uh, the note I wrote down was like because there's all the stuff in the news now about AI making things or possibly making movies. This feels like a musical that an AI would make where you feed into it like this is what makes a musical. These these things hit on these things that all musicals have. And the computer says, okay. And then it shits out <laughs> the fantastics. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like very, like the most, like if, you, if, if aliens want to know what a musical was, I guess they maybe to start with this because it's the most like by the numbers, like, like type of musical. When, when you say this, it's like very basic. Yeah, it's, it is. It, um... I can see this uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves. I can see this working a lot better on the stage than mm, on mm-hmm. film. But yeah. uh, having now been to a number of uh, of musicals, uh, thanks to the Broadway in Austin, whenever a touring company comes through, they stop by Austin. Like I don't want to say I don't want to call it like basic or, or or mediocre, but like this is. Like a very like it's hitting all the beats, and like you can tell like okay this is where the intermission is, <laughs> and um, something that I think would I think hurts the movie, but would totally make sense on stage is it's all the acting style is all very stylized and and heightened yes which is how Broadway plays are like I put this uh, I put this on last night. While I was uh, doing some chores around the house and just <laughs> listening to it, like yeah, this sounds exactly like all those musicals I've I, I've been to see. The way they're saying things in a kind of heightened way, and it's a little bit silly, but that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. So the plot, pretty simple actually. There's two neighbors. Literally, the only two people that live in this town, as far as I can tell. Uh, one is uh, this this beautiful woman named Louisa, played by Jean, Jean or Jean Jean Louisa Kelly, and her father uh, Bellamy, played by Joel Gray, the great Joel Gray from the great musical Cabaret, and then their neighbor, young handsome man Matt, played by new kid on the block Joey McIntyre. Uh, Joe McIntyre. Joe McIntyre, the young. He was the youngest member of the New Kids on the Block, right? He was like the little little guy, and his older brother was in the band, right? I don't remember I don't, that. Much. I wasn't a lady in the '90s, so I don't remember. But I think it was. He was the youngest, and he had an older brother, I think. But. I should ask my cousin. She was like, she was a huge New Kids on the Block fan and had like a sleeping bag with all their faces on it. And they were like pre in sync, pre Backstreet Boys, like pretty boy, boy band. You yeah, know. I mainly remember. The, the Right Stuff was a hit song. I was just, uh, uh, oh yeah. Hanging yeah. Tough. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Wahlberg. Donnie Wahlberg was in it. That's, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I mainly, I was too young and a boy. So. <laughs> I mainly remember the new kids on the block from several videos about not doing drugs. I remember watching on 
I think it was Christmas at my grandmother's house around the height of, and this was like, they were, their height was probably what, 90, 91, maybe 89? That seems about when New Kids on the Block, and then once Nirvana came out, that kind of music was gone forever until it came back again in the late 90s. Uh, but they had like a holiday special, like an hour-long special, where I remember them, they clearly shot it at like, I don't know, Universal Studios or something, and then the whole ending, they recreated the airplane hangar scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, the one where Harrison Ford sneaks in and punches the guy out. Yeah. And clearly this was like a stunt show that already existed at... Oh, It, um, it would have been Paramount made the movie. So where did they have but, in the 90s uh, the George, Indiana Jones stunt Disney? George buddied up to Disney. That already is back in, then? Yeah, that's in Disney, uh, Disney Hollywood Studios. Oh, that's right. They had their little special thing. Yeah. What, I forget what it's called. That was, that's in the Disney World, right? Yeah. So they did the whole recreation of that, but with the new kids at a block all playing. They weren't dressed up as Nazis, I don't think. But it was like them recreating. Maybe I dreamt this. Maybe this doesn't exist at all. But I remember that, and that's all. And I remember the Weird Al Yankovic parody of the right stuff called The White Stuff about the center of an Oreo cookie. And I remember SNL when they made fun of uh, new kids on the block, and I believe... Uh, Dana Carvey was Donnie Wahlberg and Adam Sandler might have been no he wasn't Joey maybe he was the other McIntyre maybe Rob Schneider was Joey McIntyre I don't remember but I remember they it was on it was on one of those or maybe it wasn't Dana Carvey maybe it was Carcinio and I'm totally <laughs> my, my mind is, I'm old anyways I, anyway Joe McIntyre Joey McIntyre and then his dad is played by Brad Sullivan who plays Huckleby uh, who you'll recognize him from Slapshot. He's in Slapshot. And so their neighbors and the dads don't want the kids to get together. And, I, and they, one neighbor hates the other neighbor. And it's done in this sort of really, you know, it looks fake. It doesn't look like two real houses. And it already is started reminding me of one from the heart where it's like, oh, I can see maybe why Coppola was drawn to trying to fix this movie up because this feels like that kind of... Uh, that that artifice of reality that he that he created in one from the heart where it's like clearly these aren't actually you're intentionally telling me this is a set this isn't trying to be two real houses so there's this sort of star-crossed lovers thing but the parents don't want to get together but then it's revealed that they actually do want them to get together and it's all kind of a big scam and they just want to be cool about it and at the same time a carnival travels to this town of four people and the carnival uh Leader is this guy named uh, El, El, El Gallo? El, Ga El, El Gallo. El Gallo. Sorry, I'm a white guy. Uh, played by Jonathan Morris, who's sort of like, he has sort of like a Errol Flynn, Douglas Fairbank, sort of like skinny mustache, long. He looks like a, the cover of like a romance novel. He looks of like, so uh, this guy, he's, he's mostly known in Britain for being a TV presenter. Mm. Like he, he's not much of an actor, but presents TV shows. Okay. Like in the BBC, uh, every show or documentary will have uh, a host yeah. instead of just a narrator has a host, and that's what he does. I got strong Roger Daltrey and Tommy vibes. Yeah, 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 definitely. With like the that, long flowing hair, that kind of sexy. Yeah. And so he's sort of the what would you call the lead of a carnival? <laughs> I don't know. The I mean, the, not the ringmaster, not the Barker, but... the ring, I don't know, but he runs this traveling carnival, which features among many actors Tony Cox, who you'd recognize uh, from Bad Santa as the guy who helps Billy Bob 
rob things. And Teller from Penn and Teller, of all people, in, of course, a silent performance. And my favorite part of the movie, and the best scene and maybe only good scene, in my opinion, featured him. And so basically, the two dads go to this carnival and tell the, whatever we want to call him, the guy who runs the carnival, that, that they want to fix up some a, a layer to their scam where Joey McIntyre has to save uh, Louisa and ma- make it so they'll finally get together without them being the ones who put them together. They prove that he's brave and kind of... So then El Gallo? Yeah. <laughs> Kind of comes in and pretends to be sort of this sort of silent movie bad guy, mustache trolling bad guy to kidnap and ravage the daughter. And then there's a lot of weird rape jokes for a PG movie in that part when the guy's working out the deal of what to do with the dads. Oh, yes. I see it. I start to kidnap his daughter. Your son runs into Saber. Then a battle. I allow the boy to defeat me. Your son becomes a hero. The parents relent. The feud is over forever. She melts into his arms. How much for such a drama? Oh, that's in your depends. Depends on what? Or what else? The quality of the rape. Rape? No! No rape! Oh, very well then. The abduction, the raid, the chase, the kidnapping. Call it what you will. From the Latin, rapere, meaning to seize. You weren't the only person who thought that this was... I'm guessing many high schools changed that dialogue. Yeah, the, the writers the writers of the play, who are the writers of uh, the movie also, they came up with alternate lyrics and a whole alternate song. Because there's so, a whole song that kind of goes into play with this being like a rape thing. Yeah, so the song is... It's <laughs> insane. Uh, it depends on what you pay. Like how much they pay El Gallo is like... You know that will uh, determine the quality of it, and then that there's this. He sings about all different kinds of abductions. Uh, <laughs> this kind of abduction, this kind of abduction, theatrical abduction, this abduction, uh, and then apparently in the original it was the word rape, not abduction. But in the movie, it's still rape. It's still, but in in the song for that one scene, in that in that song, he's singing abduction. Oh, but they were as long as singing rape over and over again? Yeah, and like wow. in the on the stage play, so the writers they wrote alternate lyrics, so whatever production, whatever high school, <laughs> they can choose which song and the uh, the when the, the, the staged attack where Joey McIntyre gets to defeat El Gallo and be a hero, uh, that is called the rape ballet. God damn uh, but it. then you'll see here parentheses or with an option offered later. Abduction ballet. But it's like not like this was a play from like 1850. This was from the 1960s. Yeah. People knew what that word meant then, and that was used in the way that we now know it. Yeah. It so wasn't whenever, that long ago. Whenever this so would get performed, it make much sense, and they're like, "We we meant the other way." And I don't know. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, so whenever this was performed, there either was there would be a disclaimer at some point, like maybe in the program. Or, like, the character says, like, no, no, meaning abduction. <laughs> and then you could, you would, and I imagine that most high schools and local productions went with the abduction version of that song. <laughs> it depends on what you pay. And then they stage the abduction ballet. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but that's basically the plot, because then it's, then it's sort of like them, fi- like, young people finding out that, 
this thing was set up by their parents, maybe, and da 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 da. And it's like the that's the movie. And it's weird is there's a part like there's 35 minutes in it feels like the movie's done, and then it goes on for another hour. And then when the movie ends, it feels like there should be another 90 minutes because it doesn't feel like the end of the movie. It's really weird. But, yeah, the movie feels very... It also reminded me a lot of Finnegan's Rainbow, kind of like a sort of dated musical that maybe shouldn't have been filmed as a movie and it doesn't... Mm -hmm. So I can see sort of the Coppola in that. It felt a little bit like one from the heart, a little bit like Finnegan. That's the name of the movie, right? Finnegan's Rainbow? Finian. Finian's Rainbow, sorry. I'm thinking Finnegan's Wake, Finian, I'm mixing up. Finian's Rainbow, and it just has that sort of like... Though Finian's Rainbow is much better. Uh, and the, the movie still, yeah, it, fe- has, it's, it feels... The main problem I had was it doesn't feel like a movie, other than it having these giant... It all takes place for some reason in the, the middle of, like... Not the desert, but just sort of like the... like It feels like Arizona. Like, it just feels like it just, like... Or parts of California, like Monument Valley or something, where it's like these big fields or big dirt fields... Even though it's an intimate story about like six people in these literally two locations, as all the movie takes place in, in the play, but the movie has this big kind of open space, and I think it was like real widescreen too. I, I seem to recall. Yeah. yeah. And but there's no part where the movie feels cinematic. Other than that, it's not like they're doing anything to make it. Just feels very flat. It feels so much like I'm watching a shitty play, right? <laughs> like it just feels like. A TV movie, but less than. It feels like just like, and granted, there's parts in this movie that are supposed to be kind of like a play. Like, there's a lot of the movie that takes place on a stage, which doesn't help not make it feel like a play. Like, there's a part where they go to see what's the movie they go see? Romeo. And they Juliet. see a oh, silent, silent version of Romeo and Juliet because this takes place, I guess, in the twenties or the teens. So they never say. But we're just assuming because there's 1920s, no... 19-teens. And then there's a whole part where she's on sort of like the Tunnel of Love type ride. And then behind her is like kind of this chaos while they're beating <laughs> Joey McIntyre up. Uh, and she doesn't recognize him. And that's all on a play. And it feels very... And even the musical scenes and dance scenes all kind of take place on a stage type setting, it feels like. And it never feels like a movie. Which is really sad because Michael Ritchie... He can be a, a great filmmaker, but this movie just doesn't shine and nothing pops about it. I think, well, yeah, I think, it, I think it's okay overall. It's okay. But there's a lot that doesn't work that I feel like should work. Again, because of how, artif- how silly, how artificial everything feels. That there's, there's this town where there's only two families. There's only two families with like one parent... And one child, a carnival comes in. Set while the carnival is setting up is when Joel Gray and the other dad go and hire El Gallo to do this. Yeah. They do the uh, they do the abduction ballet, <laughs> right? The kids find the kids uh, the kids find out. They fall out. They get back together, and then the carnival or circus leaves. <laughs> leaves. They never paid for any rides, as far as I can they, tell. They didn't buy any. Cut there was candy. never any circus. There was no money. In the they DJ. set up. They came to town solely to do this the thing. Scam, yeah. And then and then let and then left. And that's all weird, but that's all so acceptable if you are watching people act it out in front of you. If you're watching children act it out, if you're like, go to see your daughter's play in ninth grade, then you take it 
Because there's like all this kind of like the like none of the music's memorable. I don't remember any of the songs at all. Even the abduction ballet, like none of it is it, like I can't whistle you a bars of any of the tunes. But it has that kind of like it feels like parody of a musical. If someone was like, we're gonna do sort of like the damsel in distress and the hero, and then there's like this. It just all feels so like what you think like Seven Brides or Seven Brothers or Oklahoma would be if you never saw it, but in your head you're like, oh, I think I know what a musical is. And it is a type of musical that goes through dad's mind and are like, no, I don't want to watch that. No, let's watch <laughs> Die Hard instead. I'm not watching music. Because it's like it's like that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I think you're right about that. <laughs> um, the way some of these songs are staged, so the way musical, I mean, you watch a musical, it's all acted out in front of you, and that's great. When you watch a movie of it, usually it's all just acted out on the camera. You know, Gene Kelly... And Sid Charisse, they all, they dance, like, right there in one setting, or whoever sings, you know, Barbra Streisand sings there in one room. What this movie's done, which I can't really fault anybody for, is it kind of does the musical numbers almost like music videos. So, uh, Jean Louise Kelly. Yeah. She's singing her her I Wish song. You know, she wants some adventure. She wants, you know, to see the world. And she's singing in her room. And then cut. Now she's singing the same song in a random field. And then the next line, the next lyric, she's walking down a road. And it feels just a little bit weird. Because it feels like she's just (laughs) in random ass locations. You know, we're not watching her walk dancing from moving out of the house and yeah it's not like Santa music where we're seeing Julie Andrews go across the field and go to this it's more (laughs) it's kind of more like a music video and that just doesn't it doesn't gel well and a lot of the songs are are done like that my favorite scene in the movie and the only scene I really liked was when Teller shows them how to die and it's like a classic it feels very classic Penn and Teller where it's like this very violent, a series of violent occurrences that can kill a person one after another. And it's very good, and it's very funny. And that's about three minutes that I really liked. Uh, but then, like, the movie has, like, it just... It has these lame jokes that would you can tell would play well in a theater. Like, there's jokes about... There's gay jokes, and there's jokes about, like, the U.S. mail. You get it? The U.S. mail. And they can almost feel like Joel Grey turned to the camera in the way that, like, an actor would give a little aside to the audience and you can hear people kind of politely go, oh. but in the movie, this feels very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying like it would work better on stage because, uh, you know, theater is stupid or theater audiences are stupid. It's just like a totally, even though it's quite similar, it's a totally different media. It's a different way to, pro- you don't have to hit the back row in a movie. Yeah. It's intimate already, but like, like everybody's acting at 11 in this movie. Uh, and they didn't need to be. <laughs> I um, I like some of the songs. I, I I don't mean this as like a backhanded thing, but I really liked the the end when all the actors like the movie ends, and then the actors come out on a little mini stage yeah, like at too. the circus, and Joel Gray comes out and takes a bow, and his name comes up, and the whole cast that does that just like at the end of a play of a play yeah, that was and that was really nice and it was this nice like since they had been watching Romeo and Juliet earlier a nice nod to 
Shakespeare's, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. It felt like a, a if we shadows have offended, think <laughs> but this and all is mended kind of moment. And what's interesting is Coppola's name nowhere on the movie, nowhere on the IMDb page. I don't even remember how we found out that he had anything to do with this. But on the end credits, there's about eight people listed for Zoetrope, mostly in the editing department, or all in the editing department. And, uh, and the version that I saw was the version he cut. It's, it's like 86 ver- 80, minutes. It's real short, and there's an extended cut that was on the Blu-ray, and supposedly what was cut was about four or five songs. Hmm. And that was it. It wasn't that much different other than that. Which seems like a pretty easy thing for anyone to cut, but maybe it was like Master Coppola thinking about which songs do you cut? How do you, what do you, how do you make it shorter? See, when, uh, when you think a movie isn't going to do good, right? Especially in the 90s and early 2000s when you have to print it on film, which costs money. Yeah. Studios and executives, they want you to make it as short as possible because then they use up less, less film, film <laughs> right? So you want to cut this down. And the 90s... Not a great time for musicals. No, I would say maybe the worst decade for yeah, musicals because the eighties even... at least had fame and Annie and you know like the, the Little Mermaid and stuff. But like the nineties, so you had Newsies. 90s, yeah, yeah, Newsies, which is good. In ninety two, you had, I mean, uh, Evita and yeah, everyone Evita. says I love you. In ninety six, there were Disney movies, and then you had like sort of a musical, Waiting for Guffman, in ninety oh, six. Really? Also, sort of not not really musical. Blues Brothers two thousand, no. really like in Aladdin and the Lion King, like those like Disney kind of like musicals turn into like those big Disney movies where you get like you're gonna get your hit maker, you're gonna have Elton John help or whatever, so, and that's it, Beauty and the Beast. But like, so I feel like this, live action musicals like isn't was not a thing. It wasn't didn't really come back until what Chicago. Yeah, when, when it, they started it, doing adaptations of hit. Broadway that we musicals. couldn't afford to go see that yeah. we had to see a movie version of that. So I feel like the the studio United Artists, which was owned by MGM, was probably already like let's let's cut this thing down. Like it's it's it, it would have made sense to make this musical in the '60s or even the '70s, but it just it's so random that it was done in '95 and then it gets shelved for five years, which is crazy. Why not just dump because it on cable TV not like, by that point? Like just put it well, out because, straight to video. Because the the writers, the creators of the show, Tom Jones, not the Tom Jones that's famous, but just no, and Tom not Jones. the Tom Jones from the literary adaptation, <laughs> right? Another Tom Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt. They had in their contract that the studio had to give this movie a theatrical release (laughs) or the studio would have to pay them money. Smart contract. So that is why the studio, I'm thinking MGM. And Feimel just like the vault. And I think ultimately this is why this happened to these two MGM movies. We always hear like, oh, this movie got taken away from the director. The executives took it away. Well, what if the executives is Francis Ford Coppola? Like, yeah, we're taking away your movie, kid, and we're going to have someone else do it. Who? Like, oh, some suit that doesn't know anything about movies? No, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> like, oh, okay. 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 <laughs> but, you know, not being able to do reshoots or anything, there's not really a lot but, to but be done. There's no way that even when he worked on this and 
we'll get into Supernova, that he thought that these movies were going to do well. There's no way, there's no world where Fantastics does well in the 21st century or the late 20th century. There's no way that in 2000 they thought that any amount of fixing would make this, make dollar one. And crazily, this movie's budget, $10 million. Did all they go to Coppola? They have big lunches? Like, this movie looks cheap. This movie has six people in it. There's literally two locations. What the heck did they spend $10 million on? That's crazy. Total gross, $49,000. Oh, my God. So um, they didn't even make back the money they paid yeah, Coppola well they, to fix they, it. Uh, after, uh, after they uh, Coppola re-edited it... They released it in like four cities, like the most bare bones, like like fine. Here, your contract has yeah, been met. We released it technically in Toledo and uh, you know yeah Denver. Walla Walla. <laughs> technically, the contract has been fulfilled. You can't sue us. But yet, the stage show lives lives Still, on. It was revived and to great success. It didn't, and this claim. movie did not ruin the stage show at all. Like yeah, it's so going on. So good for that. Um, oh, I wanted to mention that. In a musical, you want to save time. You cut songs, but when you cut songs, doesn't make especially from an established show. Like they already did that when they put together the stage show, they put all the songs in the order. They workshopped it. They cut the songs that need to be cut, kept in the ones that had to be in there. So if you cut more songs from the stage show, then I I I can't see that improving the show. Um, And the song at the very end of the show of the movie which is called try to remember and it's sung in this kind of like a, uh uh like a slow whimsical way uh, almost like a dirge that is actually the very first song that is the like hey welcome to the show and it's done in a big you know the whole company is singing it kind of way and then at the end it's a reprise like a good night kind of a kind of version of it I think, I think that's the way to go with that uh the way this is the first song is um is uh, like louisa singing her her i wish song and it's like it's okay but yeah there's just there's stuff missing and it's because it was cut yeah, that's that's the fantastic. If you can watch it, go watch it on stage. I guess. Yeah, don't skip the movie. Just watch the. Wa- the wait till your daughter is in a high school play and then go see that to support. Oh, I wanted to mention that a lot of the reviews at the time, I thought were really extra cruel to the movie. They called it. It was too lavish. <laughs> it too wasn't lavish, lavish enough. Yeah, I'm like, this There's nothing is, lavish about this movie at all. The, what the hell have you been watching? They've only been watching Dogma 95, Lars von Trier movies, I guess. <laughs> a lot of reviews were like, well, it's no cabaret. Like, unlike cabaret. Okay, well, yeah, you're compared Joel, to like the greatest mu- one yeah, of the great musicals yes, of all Joel time. Joel Grey was in both. However. Well, this is no Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Yeah, like, yeah, okay, Joel Grey was in that, like, one of, <laughs> one of the best... You know, modern musicals, musicals that, that yeah. change change the way modern musicals are yeah. done and bossy and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's that's not fair. Yeah. As much as I don't like this movie, that's not a fair uh, comparison. Welcome to the world of medical rescue vessel Nightingale Nine. You want to tell me what you're doing out here? I like deep space. It's quiet. 
Prepare for rescue operation via dimension jump. Research says D-Jump is great for your sexual stamina. Hallelujah. You can play with me whenever you want. I'm not saying anything's gonna happen between us, but if it does, I want you to understand that whatever happens on this ship stays on this ship. Hi, ho, Silver. Now on to the one that has more of a crazier behind-the-scenes story. We're gonna talk about Supernova. One word, not the... Was it Stanley Tucci movie from a few years ago? Yeah. Uh, but a movie from 2000 called Supernova. Um, again, a movie uh, that was shelved not as long, not for five years. But this one had more of an actual troubled production um, where it was originally this – was, this was a Walter Hill film. You know, one of the people who created Alien. So you're thinking, yeah, let's give him money to make – you know, a sci-fi movie, uh, an R-rated sci-fi movie. And then the studio didn't like what he was doing. He made a movie that was too dark. So they hired another director, Jack Shoulder. The director of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. <laughs> to shoot more things. And then I guess they didn't like what he shot. And so then they brought in Coppola, who is the third uncredited director, though he didn't shoot anything new. Came in to just kind of take these two versions, and I guess mostly just the Walter Hill thing, but there was four endings filmed for this movie, and Coppola picked the one he thought was the best, and just sort of made this movie out of this mess with Walter Hill's blessing. Supposedly, Walter Hill was like, okay, fine, Francis, you fix this movie. And Frank, uh, Walter Hill disowned it, and it's under a fake name. Of Thomas? Thomas Lee, yeah, because by this point, up until this point, the fake name was Alan Smithy, but it had already been known by the late '90s that Alan Smithy meant a movie that directors owned because around this time was that movie Burn Hollywood Burn and Alan Smithy story, the Joe Esterhaus film, which is supposedly terrible and was also credited to Alan Smithy directing it. Uh, so they they came up with a new name, Thomas Lee as the fake name for these three directors for this movie that all directors didn't want their names on. Um, and yeah, who knows what the original was like when you read about it. According to Walter Hill, it was much darker, much weirder, had a much more unhappy ending. But even while he was making it, Walter Hill had to do many rewrites. And I guess this was a script from like the late 80s, I think. Yeah, so here's but, what I learned. And there is no definitive... You know, oral history or whatever of the making of Supernova. Nobody cared that much. And yeah, rightfully so. So what I've like, it's just blog entries yeah. with information Pieces on it. And like, and okay, things. this overlaps. So I get maybe there's some truth there. But it seems like um, an Australian producer wanted to make a cheap sci-fi movie and told a writer, give me something like Dead Calm in Space. Ooh, okay. And the writer was like, you know what? I'm just going to write Dead Calm in Space. And so he wrote that. And then, you know, it gets shopped around like, hey, a space movie and it's kind of sexy. All right, let's put more money into it. Let's make it like a super expensive, like tentpole blockbuster movie, right? And they get that set up. And a, a yet another director was initially before everybody else jeffrey wright not that jeffrey wright <laughs> second time we've had to say that not that one uh jeffrey wright who directed the uh movie romper stomper oh, okay with russell crowe 
he was going to direct it, and then five months, and allegedly, you know, five months before they were going to start shooting, he springs that like, he wants to shoot. I'm not sure the whole movie or just the zero gravity scenes, like Apollo 13, like get on the vomit comet. Was this before Apollo 13? Was this was the after? First? Oh, after. Yeah. Want to shoot it like Apollo 13, so everyone is actually in waitlist. And the studio, again, uh, MGM United Artists said, like, no, <laughs> that would be way too expensive. <laughs> this is not that kind of movie. Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then he was uh, fired slash left, and then, uh, like, we got, we need someone that knows what they're doing. They brought on Walter Hill, who yeah. looked at the script and was like, I got to rewrite this and did rewrites. But a lot, apparently a lot of the uh, costumes and sets, I don't think he got to change. And so he shot a lot of it in close-ups and medium shots just because he hated the costumes and sets. Oh, really? <laughs> Allegedly, according to the direct, the, the second actual director, third involved director, Jack Shoulder, who had a very like anti Walter Hill, pro Jack Shoulder slant to everything he said. <laughs> it's all done in close up, so I can reshoot like wide shots. Like that's fine. It makes my job easier. And allegedly, he added in, tried to add in some humor, mm. and then Coppola tried to add in some sex. <laughs> Though it was already there. Like, he didn't shoot yeah. any new scenes, Coppola, no. right? It just kind of took what was there. And So tell us the plot of Supernova before right. we get... We've already gotten into it. But, like, to, what's the uh, Beyond the Dead common space? Which totally makes sense now that you've said that. Yeah. Like, oh, of course. That is exactly kind of what this is. It's the like plot. the crew of Nightingale 9. Um, they get a distress call. Not from the dispatch, but direct to them. Right? So they got to... They have to de-jump, basically warp jump, and they have to uh, get into... They have to take their clothes off. They have to get completely nude and get into these pods. Yeah. And so it's uh, there is a, like, Paul Verhoeven... Everybody naked. So yeah, everybody in the future, everyone is fucking chill about it, all right? Yeah, just Everyone's part of the job. Everyone's being naked. <laughs> it, I, like, I like to think that Paul Verhoeven's dream is that one day... Like, men will be chill enough to just be able to be naked around naked women, and we can just... Do our know, job. We can, just, we can just do our job. <laughs> like, we can get in these pods, we all shower together, even in RoboCop. It's, it's like, just a quick shot, but you notice, like... It's one gym, like like the. That isn't Paul Verhoeven, because that also is in Starship Troopers. He that's like his European yeah. comfortableness, and I guess supposedly in RoboCop, or no, it was Starship Troopers. He directed that scene naked. We had the whole crew get naked too. It was like we're all naked, and he directed the co-ed shower scene nude for Starship Troopers. So yeah, they they have to get nude. They they jump through, uh, they jump through space. Everything gets all pink and blurry, and there's like flashes that are either flash forwards or flashbacks or flashes to things that never happened i don't know <laughs> and then uh the captain of the ship robert forrester has oh. accidentally uh fused into the glass of his pod yeah. oh. they have they have glass windows very disturbing and before before they all jump he tells angela bassett who's the uh the ship's doctor uh, like, hey, you take my pod, I'll take this one, 
And she says, why? And he says, oh, we, we can talk about that later. And then he fuses into the pod and he's like melded into the glass. And it is kind of like disturbing. And they have to, <laughs> they have to kill him because there's no way to save that. So that means that is that you would think Angela Bassett, who seems the most senior person, is now in charge. But actually, it's the newest member of the crew, uh, Nick, played by James Spader, who's the pilot. He's a recovering drug addict. <laughs> he was addicted to this drug called Hazen. Which is the last name of uh, of one of my friends of Shane Hazen, who was on <laughs> on our episode, yeah, on our uh, Rumblefish episode. So when they like talking about like, like I've seen what Hazen can do to people, <laughs> I always I have to giggle. And the uh, they go to this planet. They or it's a rogue moon that used to be a mine. There's only one person there who sent the distress call and oh I forgot to mention that they knew the name of the person and it was Angela Bassett's ex and she's like that's weird yeah she's like that's weird and he's bad news he was also a drug addict <laughs> a lot of drug addicts yeah. in outer space but then it's actually not it's not her ex because this guy is way too young and it's Peter Fascinelli a very like nude Peter Fascinelli <laughs> Everyone's very new. This is a very naked movie. Yeah. There's like, this feels like, I jokingly said before we watched, like, oh, James Spader's in it. Well, like, this will be like a sexy sci fi because that's what Spader brings. And boy, was I right. This is movie is a movie. Yeah. This feels like a late night cable movie. It's like a lot of sex, a lot of nudity. Uh, didn't know that Robin Tooney, who's in this movie, was naked all over this movie. Like, Spader, of course, totally comfortable being naked. Every day of his life, <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips looking real good, just running around naked. <laughs> this is a sexual sci-fi movie. So Peter Fascinelli has uncovered some weird alien artifact. It's pink. It's oval shaped. Uh, it's kind of like 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 a vagina. They almost make that joke, but then stop. And it makes you like younger. Like Lou Diamond Phillips is supposed to be old. He's got like gray temples and then he stares at the thing and touches it for like, I don't know, days? It, it, he's Time just there. Yeah, he's just there. He's just there staring at it. And then now he, his, the gray temples are gone and he can do um, handstand push-ups. Yeah. Makes people stronger and yeah. younger. But they find out that this thing is actually some sort of uh, bomb, basically. Like Peter Fascinelli wants to take it back to Earth to sell it, but it's it would. Blow. But it's like an ancient alien bomb or something, right? Yeah, like yeah. it would. It's like the Genesis device from Star Trek Three. Like it's a bomb, but it also then creates new life. But it would totally destroy Earth and possibly the entire universe. And then it turns out Peter Fascinelli is Angela Bassett's ex. He just got super young yeah. from glow, staring at the glowing thing for a long time. And he's super strong. He has sex with Robin Tunney. And he then he sends James Spader down to the moon to get more fuel. To leave but, him there. Yeah, but trick, there is no fuel. You're left there. Robin Tunney sees this. So then he throws her out the airlock. Then he beats up and kills Lou Diamond Phillips, who did not put up a good fight. You would no, think, you think he would because he yeah. can do handstands. He can, he's, got, he's young. He's like got the super strength now. But no, he takes him out so easy. Throws him out the airlock. Uh, Wilson Cruz from My Soul Called Life is also one of the members of the from. crew. Yeah, he's, he's he's the nerdy guy who's in love with the computer. 
There's like always in these sci-fi movies, there's a nerd who's in love with some artificial thing that he created. I believe Jason X has that plot yeah. point as well. Yeah, he, uh, he created, he made the computer to be kind, more human-like and have a sexy voice. And they call the computer <laughs> Sweetie. Uh, he puts up the best fight. And then he tries to get the computer to, uh, to kill Peter Fascinelli. But the computer is like, I cannot bring harm to a human being. And he has to try to logic his way, and it takes too long, and then Peter Fastinelli kills him. And it's, like, too <laughs> sad. It's just way too sad. Yeah, I really thought that character was going to go to the end, because I really yeah. liked him. And then, uh, so then James Spader makes it back. He says, hey, dummy, you... There's no fuel here. There's no fuel on the ship. It's broken. How the hell are you going to get back to... Oh, and there's like a weird 11-minute window that if they don't launch at a specific yeah. time, like this, this nearby sun or something's going to kill them or something weird. Yeah, they're around... Not a red giant, but a blue giant. Yeah. Which I, I'm i not sure it's an actual thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, James Spader points out, like, you, like, what was your plan? How are you going to get home? <laughs> what, what, what were you doing here? So then he and Angela Bassett, they trick Peter Fascinelli into uh, going to a certain part of the ship where they hid the they hid the artifact and they blow him up. And then they have to jump back to get away from the supernova, I guess. Hey. But there's only one transport pod left. Peter Fascinelli smashed them all. Except for one that he was going to use for himself. And then, but they still are able to leave even though they had no fuel. That doesn't make sense. I think the blast is able to project to project them, mm. to, to propel them forward. So, James Spader says, you take the pod, I'll stay. And she's like, no, if you're staying, then I'm staying. They're like, at least this way we both have a chance. So they both get totally naked. <laughs> get a pod together. They get in the Classic pod together. Classic Spader move. They, uh, he knew what he was getting. He knew what was And then they, their faces kind of meld together, but then they unmeld. So at the end, she has one blue eye and he has one brown eye. And then the computer says, oh, by the way, <laughs> you're, you're pregnant. pregnant. <laughs> and like, what about that thing? The alien device. She says, like, the blast will reach Earth in 51 years. It will either destroy Earth or Make allow it, better. it or allow it to reach a new level of existence. Supernova two guys, let's do it. Yeah. But so that, you can this movie I loved this movie. This movie but. is so <laughs> stupid. It's so good. Like I think the Fantastics is a better made movie. But Supernova is more entertaining. Very entertaining. So the uh, most entertaining things, we've already touched on this, is that the first half of this movie, before it basically turns into a slasher monster movie, is this is a very horny, sexy movie. <laughs> and James Spader... So there's genres in movies, right? Comedy, <laughs> horror. There's also the James Spader has sex genre. <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh... Yeah, that's a thing. Right. Sex lies in videotape. Right, the movie uh, where know, he like... doesn't have sex, but it is still very sexual. Right, he's in like bad influence. Uh, like Crash is a sexy movie. Crash, the movie where he has sex with every cast, me every cast member, man and woman. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And for a while, it seems like this is going to be that kind of movie. His intensity and chemistry with literally 
Everyone he speaks to seems like, like they're if, gonna go do it. Yeah, if the next if it just smash cuts to either him and Angela Bassett or Robin Tunney or Wilson Cruz having sex, you would it would make sense. If he yeah, if it just cut to Lou Diamond Phillips and Spader having sex, you're like, well yeah, you're working you're on, trapped in a spaceship with Spader, you're all gonna fuck him at some point. That's just Is he the most sexual actor of all time? Where I mean, he just he just is like not even counting like secretary movies that where he straight up has sex. It's like he just seeps a. There's like this sex coming up. Like you can feel the pheromones through your TV. Like you're just getting. Yeah. Well, his a ca- his character yeah. on the on the office. He was the guy after Michael Scott left. He was Robert California, played mm-hmm. by James Spader, came in. Who was this like, like shady like hedonistic guy and he would go on monologues about like orgies he had and yeah and I think that's Spader I think that's just who he is I yeah think. so proving that the Criterion channel I last month I think they were there they were highlighting erotic movies of the 80s and 90s and the cover image of that was an image of James Spader in the movie Dream Lover Never seen that movie. Yeah, another. Yeah, James Spader has <laughs> sexy sex, and maybe someone is gets murdered. Who knows? And what's interesting is one of the main things that Coppola added. That he didn't just kind of oversee the re-edit. And who knows how much say he had? And this was definitely way more work than the Fantastic. The Fantastics, he just took songs out. This one was like this fucking mess handed to him, and like this was actual work. But um, one thing that he added. Uh, which is questionable, uh, I don't know, that there was not a sex scene film between Spader and Angela Bassett. They just kind of imply that they have sex. It cuts to them kind of talking like you know about work, but because it's James Spader, he was like, oh, well, they're totally going to do it. Uh, but then what he did was there was a sex scene earlier between Robin Tooney and Lou Diamond Phillips, and he just digitally made her skin black. And made it seem like a scene of Angela Bassett having sex with James Spader. Yeah, so in. basically, blackface, definitely black, digital blackface, uh, and just made a scene where you just change the tone of the bodies to make this seem like yeah. And then there's Spader, like a, a solar flare. Sex. There's a solar flare, yeah. so you don't even really see. Well, it's like, like a faces. shot where you're outside the spaceship and you're kind of from a distance seeing people do it through like this thing. It's like a oh, really but, fancy scene. And they shot. have sex in – so that scene and then a scene with Robin Tunney and Lou Diamond Phillips and then uh, with Robin Tunney and Peter Fastinelli, there's, there's at least one – like there are these zero-G pods on this ship which seem to be just the place to go and bang. <laughs> right like they serve like no this. other purpose it's just like that's where you go to have sex didn't they have a room like that in ice pirates on their ship isn't there like the, the i've sex never seen room? ice pirates <laughs> uh yeah but that's sort of like the the uh, the, the unspoken that, like that's the room where we do it right because we're in deep space and we're you know there's men that, and women on here the fact that go. they're uh the fact that there wasn't already <laughs> a, a sex scene, a love scene between Spader and Angela Bassett is crazy <laughs> because the the whole like sexy angle is like the the big like that's what's going to make this movie good. And it's already rated R because it's going to be the test full nudity from men and women. Yeah, it's going to so be you're it, already there. It's supposed to be, I guess the Walter Hill cut was like more violent. And if you're already doing an R-rated movie, then 
yeah, go for nudity and yeah, violence. go for go for that angle because yeah, that scene, the scene where if you take out that sex scene, which wasn't which isn't really there, it the way it's set up, like yeah, you want that. He basically knocks on her door and says like, <laughs> "You up?" Well, it's also weird to have a Spader movie <laughs> where there isn't a sex scene. It just it's just weird. Yeah. So let's talk about the trailer for because you watched the trailer. I, so before we watched this for this podcast, I had only heard – there's only two things I remember of this movie. One, that I heard that it was the worst, which it wasn't. I really liked this movie a lot and found it very – a great Friday night view. But I remember very distinctly the trailer because it is one of the worst trailers of all time. And I remember – because this, this movie came out in 2000, so the trailer like maybe – the earliest it was a late 99. The trailer starts out like like you said, like a normal, like in a world. But then it goes into Three Dogs Night Three Dog Nights, Mama Told Me Not to Come. Into hell. I really wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't done that either. I've gotten out of worse situations. We'll get out of this one. When you said you've been in worse situations than this, what was that? Ten minutes ago when the ship was falling and the engines cut out. Which is not at all the tone of this movie. If you know that song, it's a very fun 70s. It's a song that was used in Boogie Nights. You know, mm-hmm. I think it was... Maybe it's in the party scene where they go into the swimming oh, yeah, pool, yeah, I yeah. think, the right? Like tracking the big shot. tracking shot. So Mama Told Me That Come is around in that scene, I think. But I, I wonder if because of the success of Boogie Nights, like, the 70s, let's put this song on the trailer. Well, you know, and, the, the first song in the trailer, when it, everything's being introduced, and hey, meet this, like, wacky <laughs> crew. They, oh, they're so silly. They can't get their shit together. Is, of course, if, I, if like, you gotta sell this movie... The one song you're going to think of is Fly by Sugar Ray. That's right. <laughs> so the, the tone of this movie is it's is kind of like... This movie would work really well as a double feature with Event Horizon or what's the Danny Boyle... Sunshine. Uh, Sunshine. Where it's dark. It is dark and it's kind of sexy and it's an R-rated sci-fi movie. That's definitely what this is. And the tone is that it's sort of intense and it's like a thriller. It's like This is like an erotic thriller in space. Like Event Horizon. And so the trailer makes it seem like this fun-loving, goofy, wise... Maybe because Armageddon was a hit recent before this, like in 98. So yeah, they're doing the Sugar Ray's I Just Want to Fly. And then going into like, Mama told me that. And it just looks like it's all like... It makes it seem real quippy, like it's a Joss Whedon thing or something. And really fast and not at all, not at all what the movie is. I hope Coppola... Part of his deal is the edit of the trailer. I hope he did. I hope Coppola did. He's like, this is what I'll do. I'll sell this movie, get butts and seats, and then they'll see some other movie, and that's fine. They're already there. But the tone is so weird. That song does not. Neither of those songs work. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, some of the stuff in the trailer isn't in the movie because they had so much footage to work from. I want to say there's like a line or two that's like that wasn't in the movie. I wouldn't um, be surprised because uh, this movie, like I said, with the Fantastic Studios want, if it looks like it's going to be bad, you cut it down as short as possible. This is 90 minutes. And I imagine, like, Walter Hill's idea was, you know, much longer. The budget was insane. This was a $90 million movie. It made $14 million, which isn't bad. 
but not good if you want to make your money back. Also, this movie was, I didn't notice at the time, when I saw it in theaters with my parents. Wait, you saw this in theaters? Yes. That's awkward. You were, what, 20? I was 14. 14. Uh, Did you like it? No. (laughs) No, I did Did not. Did your parents like it? I would imagine they did not. Mm. Um, Why did they take you to see this movie? They're like, oh, it's a sci-fi movie. That's it. It's, it's like, like a Star Wars. It's a sci-fi it. movie, but it was released in January. And January, as I know now, is when studios dump movies. their bad movies. Yeah. They re- put out all their good Oscar stuff and some of their big blockbustery kind of stuff. And in December, around Christmas time, and they want you to go see those, and then they kind of just throw out what they think of as like, oh, they're bad movies, and don't pay attention. We made it. We have to release we it. We gotta write don't it off. It, don't pay attention <laughs> to that, though. Another thing worth noting is, despite the $90 million budget, parts of this movie seem really cheap. So like, there's parts that seem really expensive, and then things like the robot... We have the, to. We have to talk. We have to talk. We about have the robot. to talk about the robot. The robot feels like not just what the character is, which is sort of like a silly robot, but it looks like a Doctor Who robot, and not current Doctor Who, and not even '80s Doctor Who. But this feels like mid '70s BBC cardboard. Like it is so cheesy. This looks like looking. It looks like when Woody uh, Allen pretends to be a robot in Sleeper. Sleeper. <laughs> this looks like. <laughs> Yeah, it does. So it's like, if you're old enough, you might remember the Crash Test Dummies. Not the band. Not that one. <laughs> this is our Not That One episode. But the, 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 commercials. the characters. The commercials. Yeah. It looks like a Crash Test Dummy who is... <laughs> they call him... They call him Flyboy. They, uh, because he's dressed up like a World, World War One pilot. He is not. It looks like he's wearing clothes from the Gap. And this robot, to be clear, is a man... In plain clothes with like a, a plain like like mannequin type mask on so that shuffles around. It's, it feels shuffles like, around like like a crash test dummy. Or it feels like do you ever see Red Dwarf like season two of Red Dwarf? Like it just feels like it's real bad. James Spader's <laughs> first his first scene in the movie is his head tilted, staring at the robot, and he is thinking. What, I, he, what movie did I sign up for? You know he is thinking, why is there a man in the robots? <laughs> it's so bad. It is maybe the worst movie robot of all time. Like really Ed is. Wood would have made a robot. Like it, it, this feels like oh, what it's Halloween. Oh, you didn't think about a costume. Oh, you got everyone at schools wearing a costume. Okay, what do we do? Okay, we're gonna get a bunch of cereal boxes. We got okay. We're gonna get we're gonna empty these. Uh, Paper towel rolls. We're going to duct tape it together. Uh, here, I got some silver paint. Uh, here, wear this uh, your strainer on your head, this metal strainer. And here, hold this kitchen. You're a robot now. Poof, you're a robot. And they keep <laughs> bringing it up. It keeps coming back. <laughs> he has a scene. Like, the robot has a scene where they're, 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 they're during, like, a He's, big effects scene. Yeah, it, but the, with the, the climax. I didn't, I didn't say it at the time. I was saving it. The climax, how they trick Peter Fascinelli into going into the pod or whatever, is, like, they dress up. Flyboy in a suit so that <laughs> Peter Fascinelli thinks it's James Spader trying to like hide hide the artifact. But really it's Flyboy and Angela Bassett can control him 
with mm-hmm. gloves, kind of like Tom Cruise would use in Minority Report to move stuff around on the screen. And uh, she makes Flyboy give Peter Fastinelli the finger. <laughs> and it would be cool, except that thing looks so stupid. It's like worse than the biggest joke robot that would be on like the early version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Or like it looks so, so bad. Again, maybe think of Roger Corman, Coppola. <laughs> So yeah, and Coppola got paid, you know, a million each for these movies. These movies made the studio zero dollars, lost the money in both uh, both ways. Uh, I think he knew that these weren't going to make any money. I think that's why he's like, yeah, I'll work on this. And maybe people will know I did or not. Don't put my name on it. But there's no way that either of these movies would ever be a hit at the time that they came out in 2000. What were the big movies of 2000? Not these. I don't even remember. Uh, 2000 was Glad- that Gladiator. Year? Was it? Oh, yeah. They're glad he Mission Impossible big... 2. Oh, okay. Yeah. On the uh, the artier side, Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Oh, yeah. 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 I think maybe that was the year of the first Shrek. Yeah. And Pearl Harbor. Yeah, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. It was okay. 2000. These are all movies I saw in the theater. What a, what a great year for movies. <laughs> but yeah, Coppola pulling a fast one, making just some money to buy some more acreage for his vineyard yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, and still a long way away from making another movie. This is 2000, so there's still going to be another seven years till we get to yeah. the next film that he directed. There's like an ad that he directed. Like if you look at IMDb, there's like something around this time too that I could not find. There was some sort of like ad that he did. Well, IMDb has now started listing commercials, which makes it like really like I get it. Okay, yeah, they did direct that, but. So if we can just, find just that, maybe we'll movies. talk about that. Um, just show me the movies and the TV shows, but put the TV shows in a separate section. <laughs> I just need to see a list of movies. And IMDb keeps changing their format, and it keeps getting worse and harder to find the information. And I hate the way now we have to click on you have to like click what show more? they're doing and show more. And yeah, it's it's sad because it is the. Number one way to get information about movies on the internet, but is like the worst version of that website. Yeah, and it used to be fine. Used to be just fine. Remember when the news on IMDb used to be movie news when it was like the Gannett news source, and now it's just like, I don't want to know about Donald Trump on IMDb. Like, granted, sure he was in a TV show once in Home Alone too, but like that's like news news. I don't want to read the news news. I want to know about movie news. IMDb used to be a safe place for news, and now it's tainted. A couple more trivia facts about Supernova, which I found interesting. It started out, it was going to be more like Event Horizon, where this artifact wasn't going to just be some sort of Genesis bomb thing, but it was going to open a portal to hell. Just like in Disney's The Black Hole. Yeah. (laughs) And they even had H.R. Geiger do some sketches of like what the devil what the space devil would look like which i imagine i mentioned this to my wife and she said he didn't come up with anything he just tore a few pages out of his nightmare journal and showed it to him like what if it sort of looked like genitals but also kind of looked like an insect and you're like okay it's like what if uh, (laughs) what if the devil but with big horns but he's like metal and kind of wet <laughs> and fused into like pipes. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he did the one thing, but he did it well. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, yeah, this movie in Event Horizon, they, they arced and crossed paths. 
Um, I don't see this supernova coming around like every every just about every movie now has a second life of like mm, you know actually that is a good movie uh i don't think that's gonna happen for supernova <laughs> which is too bad because i do i did actually really like it i was shocked at how much i liked and it there's other ways to be a contrarian you know? <laughs> um yeah this it's weird that Coppola would do this like it makes sense finding out that okay he's on the board of directors of MGM these are MGM movies but it's weird that it happened um, it's weird that it's these two movies and then that was it and then and for that one year like that one year he wanted an extra two million dollars and Micah says he's on the board and he's like he smelled like a like he was like oh here's a way I, I, I noticed that they have yeah. these movies sitting around I'll Fix him up for you. I'm master. I'm the director of Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola. I'll fix <laughs> Supernova for you. And they're like, great. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah. yeah. So that. So we did it. Uh, the next episode, we're back into official Coppola filmography. We only have three movies left, which is crazy. That we're kind of at the end and we're in the final, or I guess the final chapter is whatever the next one's going to be. But we're in sort of like the. What was thought to be the final chapter of his filmography uh, before we knew he was making a new movie now. So in the aughts and in the teens, the early teens, he made three movies. And we're going to kickstart it off with Youth Without Youth. Sort of the first of these sort of self-funded or what was supposedly... This is the movies the winery paid for. That He finally was able to go back to the movies that he used to make of the way he wanted experimental smaller movies with smaller budgets like indie all the way across the board uh and we're going to kick it off with youth without youth which i've never seen then we'll just go from there and i think i have a feeling that we'll be done with coppola by the end of summer we we move slow here at the director's hole but Mm. maybe we'll move faster knowing we're at the end we'll have the, the the inspiration to just like power through and then the next director, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think these movies would go well, like, right on top of each other. I agree. Yeah. All right. I'm excited. So, um, I'm on Letterboxd uh, at AJGO85. Uh, still on, I'm still on Twitter, though I don't check on it a lot. Uh, under the same thing, director's wall. Same situation, director's wall, or at director's wall, uh, but we just post about when we got a new episode, and then we get the hell off. (laughs) Get the hell off of Twitter. It's only gotten worse. (laughs) And you can't find me nowhere. If you want to talk to me, you're just going to have to, you know, say hi to me in person if we happen to to cross paths. The good old Say, hey, hey, I listened to director's wall, I like it. Hey, Brian, cool. Uh, And I'll be like, hey, cool, nice to meet you. We will return, hopefully soon. Sooner than later. I have a feeling it's going to be sooner than like it's no no more of these five month gaps uh, between things. Uh, hopefully, well we'll see. <laughs> return. We'll find out what this uh, what this rose is all about in Youth Without Youth. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, although you know. The snow will follow Deep in December It's nice to remember Without a hurt The heart 
is hollow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember the fire of September that made us mellow. Deep in December, our hearts should remember and follow.